Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness, regular listeners to this show, which has uh, been going on for eight years now and a massive archive at both prn.fm and at my own technosis, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com website. As you such listeners will know, um, I was gone last week, and I was at a uh, festival in Hungary, went with my wife Jennifer uh, to the Ozora Festival, which probably has about, I don't know, 15,000 people, 20,000, eh, probably less than 20,000. Um, amazing festival, if you like the uh, neo-tribal, psychedelic, electronic dance music, uh, pagan th- Global Melting Pot in Nature Festival. Uh, highly recommend it. It's a beautiful place, great uh, structures, a very trippy uh, environment, lots of very sweet people, uh, and a lot of great music. And on top of all that, I was there to participate in a lecture series at the Chambuk House, which is the oldest structure on the land, a wonderful old farmhouse that they've converted into a, a, a great speaker environment and it was a wonderful series uh and uh you know hats off to the the curators um had a much higher level of uh, of sophistication interest and humor uh than a lot of um psychedelic uh lecture series or whatever you want to call them that occur at a lot of these festivals and uh the only problem the only bummer and it was a big bummer with the uh, Chambix, uh House series of lectures was the absence of someone who was supposed to be there, uh, my friend Mitch Mignano, uh, a.k.a. Raven, uh, who I know not super well, but uh, know him, I've always enjoyed running into him at Burning Man and uh, various other uh, oddball locations. Um, and he was going to talk about... Uh, Burning Man and the trickster archetype and comedy. Uh, and so I was really uh, uh, unhappy that he wasn't able to join us because it was a really good crew of folks and he would have fit right in. Um, but also because I was uh, extremely interested in his topic. Um, I wrote a piece about the trickster, cr- trickster at the crossroads for Gnosis Magazine in like, oh my God, like 1995, some crazy thing. And I put it on the web and it was, you know, one of the first, I think, big kind of interesting articles about the trickster in contemporary world and in the technological world in particular. And it was I think it's one of my probably most linked pieces because it was online so so early. So I'm definitely on the uh, the trickster side of the equation in terms of my uh, dominant archives, uh, archetypes. I'm uh, a big fan of, uh, you know, Raven, Coyote. Uh, Eshu, Legbara, Hermes, Thoth, uh, and I'll even throw Ganesh in there. He's not quite a trickster, but he uh, op- operates along similar channels and is also sim- similarly identified with uh, with humor or at least being in a good mood. Um, and that was the other part that I wanted to, to hear Mitch talk about, is talk about comedy, because even without thinking about his, his particular talk and what it might have been about, um, I thought more about comedy at the festival or, or humor, really, and the incredible significance of humor within a 
spiritual slash psychedelic slash uh, metaphysical worldview. And really sensing that while, you know, people have thought a lot about comedy, people have thought a lot about humor, there's a lot of sort of canny wisdom about, you know, one of the most important things in life is humor. And, you know, it's very, it's a healthy thing to develop, although, of course, it can be cruel and sarcastic and um, isolating as well. I still feel that that we are all wrestling with this topic and really wrestling with how important uh, humor is, uh, particularly when we're pursuing um, higher sort of metaphysical or spiritual principles and po politics as well. What are the what is the politics of humor? Is it is it reactionary? Is it negative? Is it does it destroy the the kind of camaraderie we need to face the, our, our battles or is it actually a, a, a salve or an instrument of politics itself a kind of sacred satire that can uh, undermine the pretensions and the claims of power uh, that are forced in our faces by the powers that be um, does it have an anti-authoritarian anti spark that can be relied on or is it in, in fact a trickster and therefore can never exactly be relied on for anything so hopefully some of these questions will come up in our conversation uh, today with Mitch. Um, so with no further ado, Mitch, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hi there, Eric. <laughs> How's it going? It's pretty good. So I, hopefully my phone, I wasn't, I thought we were doing a Skype sound check. So hopefully my phone connection is good enough as I do live kind of in the middle of nowhere. So somebody has to let me know if for some reason you can't hear me very well. Okay, I'll let you know. It's sounding okay right now. Definitely a, definitely a phone line, but uh, the words are coming through uh, uh, clear so far, so we'll just go, f go with it as is. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not exactly uh, sure to start because I, I read through your, your wonderful thesis that you did on Burning Man. Uh, definitely one of the best pieces about Burning Man I, I've ever read by, without any doubt, partly because I agree with your interpretation of the event in in many ways i also really appreciate the particular history you tell about the event and why that particular history is important and i'm referring here to the role of uh cacophony and uh, ultimately gary warns and the suicide club in creating uh what michael michael calls the social software of the event uh, and so while, you know, many people associate Burning Man primarily with Larry Harvey, who's, of course, the guy who helps drag out the, man, the first man and burn him and became the kind of, you know, Stetson-hatted figurehead and was often quoted as, you know, his, his pronouncements on culture and creativity and community uh, were the sort of official ideological material of Burning Man, the unofficial, and to my mind, much more important and much more interesting uh, stream of ideas, concepts, practices, behaviors uh, has to do with this uh, uh, kind of current of cacophony. So, I mean, I want to ask you about a lot of things about the trickster beyond Burning Man, uh, but since Burning Man is on the horizon, uh, you know, people are thinking about going, they're getting ready. Um, let's talk about the event uh, for a little bit. And particularly, let's let's go over that history, especially for people who don't know it very much. Um, talk a little bit about why in your work on Burning Man uh, or, or, or what were the kinds of things you were trying to bring forward from 
its history because it's such an ahistorical event in many ways. It it allows us to escape history temporarily. Uh, but of course, the event itself has its own history, comes out of earlier currents uh, that are very important to know. Um, so talk a little yeah. bit about your research into uh, the Cacophony Society and related uh, San Francisco currents in terms of what sorts of ideas and practices and archetypes were operating there that help us understand, uh, at least let's call it the classic uh, phase of Burning Man. Yeah, well, I think, I think it was good the way that the research unfolded because I didn't, I didn't know that stuff going in. You know, I was interested in Burning Man, and if it weren't for Larry Harvey's kind of like expansion and kind of keeping the thing going. I may never have gotten to go. My first year was 2004. Um, and although generally I've been interested or I had been interested in comedy up to that point, um, and both of my parents were kind of pranksters, um, it wasn't something I was, I was looking to find when I was doing my research. I was interested in, I'd gotten all excited about these, kind of esoteric ideas about an evolution of consciousness, um, Owen Barfield and Rudolf Steiner, um, Gebser, uh, and Teilhard de Chardin, and then my mentor, my thesis mentor, William Irwin Thompson. Um, and I was working directly with him, um, although he was pretty hands-off. He was a thesis reader, so he was pretty hands-off. He would basically uh, let me engage him in dialogue about concepts, but he didn't know what I was up to exactly. And he has a, uh, you know, his field actually is history. He has a PhD in history. And as I was trying to grapple with this question that many burners ask themselves, and you hear it talked about all the time in this most dilettante fashion, which is, um, you know, uh, what's happening? How are we evolving? We, we must be evolving. because It feels like this, this primordial force, and, and you're just kind of overwhelmed by it. Um, everybody at Burning Man gets in these little groups and talks about evolution as if they have any idea what evolution really is. So I try to take the question more seriously. In order to do that, you have to really, you have to really work with something like what is the phenomenon. And in order to do that, you have to look at the history specifically. And I, I decided it was just an instinct, but I just decided to avoid the organization for some reason and kind of. Um, and look for the rest of the history. I mean, I, I had a, you know, you can kind of smell it that that, that that wasn't the whole story. You know, something something was off about the website at least ten years ago when I wrote this. Something was off about about this story. Um, and, and you know, your experience. Yeah, we burn an effigy, and that does kind of centralize the narrative um, for everybody. But it's not as if we're just a bunch of effigy burners and we're going out to do this. You know, this thing that's bringing back some kind of like, uh, you know, um, old, like early modern European like practice or whatever. It's, it's, it's something else going on. And when I looked into it, uh, one of the, I noticed one of the big things that most people don't realize is that uh, the burning man, the first burn in the desert is actually the fourth cacophony society zone trip. And that's important. And that's, that's generally a surprise to most people. Um, so, I mean, it's a zone trip that the Cacophony Society invited Larry Harvey to bring the man from Baker Beach out to because that year, in 1990, he wasn't able to um, 
wasn't able to burn the man because that Baker Beach burn that started in 86 and was growing each year um, had gotten to the point where uh, the cops said, you can't burn that. You know, it's 500 people or something like that. And he, he and this is part of his impulse, right? He didn't, he had this more accommodating, cooperative um, sense about him. I didn't know him personally, actually. But it seems with his decisions, his organizational decisions and whatnot, he he was he was okay with that and didn't didn't burn the man. Um, whereas John Law um, and others in Cacophony Society were a little more. John Law had been in the Suicide Club, which we'll get into that, but um, a little more rambunctious. So <laughs> let's say you know, and probably would have just been like, you know, screw it, burn it. Um, so not being able to burn the man that year and uh, the Cacophony Society being well aware of it because it was actually the Cacophony Society, as I understand it, that was helping manage the Baker Beach burns. Um, they were the ones on walkie-talkies kind of like like patrolling the perimeter um, and the ones who promoted it in their rough draft uh, newsletter. Again, I wasn't there. It's a little before my time, but this is what I what I gathered from, from, uh, from doing the research. And so um, the Cacophony Society, you have to question then, well, what is a zone trip and who are these guys? And that takes you another level deeper. The zone trip, um, a lot of people are uh, familiar with the temporary autonomous zone uh, concept from Hakeem Bey, uh, and we can get into that too. But what a lot of people aren't aware of is the Tarkovsky film Stalker, which um, is where this zone concept comes from um and it's i don't know if you've seen i'm just, actually i assume you probably have seen it right eric stalker the tarkovsky oh uh, numerous times yeah it's right. an interesting it's movie too it's also it's based on a a a, a, a science a russian science fiction film a novel or novella yeah. uh that is itself a, a very interesting kind of exploration of what can be known and not known on the on the edges of things but the when you see the film this the sense of the zone a place where uh, another logic rules outside of the kind of mundane gritty world that we we share otherwise um is quite uh powerful and it's it's what one of the things that's great about it in the film is that it's neither positive or negative it's not like a place where your dreams come true mm-hmm. although that's one of the stories that people tell about it which is why people go there mm-hmm. but at, once you get there it's much more confusing what's actually happening there and it's kind of dark and strange but it's not a horror thing at all so it, it, it it's a wonderful film for communicating the sense of enigma of not knowing in a way that is both scary and uh, exhilarating, which is really appropriate for the kinds of trips they ended up doing. And then, of course, particularly uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, which was their name for the zone trip uh, where they first went out to the playa and burnt the man. Right, exactly. And um, there's, there's guys at the Weird Studies podcast have a great two-part episode where they talk about stalker for those who are interested in the movie um, and you could also just watch the movie. Uh, and, uh, so this, so it's inspiring. It's an inspiring concept. And this, this, this notion of trying to create a space that would evoke that experience had gotten into the, um, minds of some of the cacophony society, um, folks. And, uh, 
uh, I think it was Kevin Evans, right, that went out to see a saw a wind sailing event in the Black Rock Desert and had recommended it to the others, and so they decided to have the uh, bad day at Black Rock and invite Larry Harvey along, and the rest is history, you know. And if anything, um, once there was uh, once there was problems in '96 with the they didn't have roads, they didn't have a, an organized city, and people got run over in a tent, I think it was, and. And and then it was a huge decision point. As far as I understand it, John Law didn't go back after that. Um, John Law, Michael Michael, and um, Larry Harvey, the ones that hold the trademark. Um, and Michael Michael still goes and is still active. And um, and so that, that impulse, that more chaotic, destructive, um, for its own sake, in some sense, impulse has receded. And I think that the 2007, when the man was burnt by that... Um, by that fellow during the lunar eclipse. I think that was a kind of rite of passage because in a way it was Burning Man when they, when they supported prosecuting him, it was Burning Man saying, we are not that. And that is something that they certainly were before 1996. It's hard for me to imagine somebody being prosecuted in 1995 for, for that. I mean, maybe you disagree, but... Um, no, 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 not a, not at all. I think I think I actually one of the things I admire about your 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 kind of remarkable writing. I really hope that you get a version of this uh, out into the world um, because you have you go down many interesting pathways of art history, uh, you know, spirituality, uh, anthroposophy. There's a lot of interesting things that we won't be getting to here. Uh, but you've also identified what I think is the the proper way historiography to think about the event. That you have, you know, 1990 to 1996, which is the Helco year, uh, where things got hairy, and there was a, mm-hmm. a you know, a, 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 a death before the event due to uh, crazy, you know, playing chicken essentially, um, and then there was uh, running over two ravers in a in a tent didn't die, mm-hmm. um, but they clearly, you know, at that point again there was it was not a city. It was didn't have roadmaps. It did not have a grid. You know, it was like if, if you look at the history of cities, you know, you'll, you have villages. And before you have villages, you have these like kind of organic, weird mixtures of things. And that's how it was. And then it became organized, imposed, a structure imposed from above in order to produce the familiar uh, crescent shape of the event. Uh, you know, 97 doesn't really count because it's kind of off the playa. It's sort of an interim year. And then. Then we initiate with with ninety eight when they're back on the playa a sort of run uh, a run that goes to to two thousand and seven which which I think is in many ways mm-hmm. as interesting as the first run in some ways even more so because it's more complicated yep. uh, but I will also believe that nineteen that the two thousand and seven when Paul Lattice uh, burnt the man on the Monday night under a uh, a, a lunar eclipse. Um, was uh, as, as significant a hinge point. And what it showed, again, was the organization's complete disavowal of their origins in chaos and their origins in the outside and in the dangerous aspects of the prankster. Uh, I was, uh, it was a very interesting event to be at. In, in 2007, for me, it was the quote-unquote last year, although I've been, I think I came one or two times since then, uh, but I haven't been for eight, for eight years, partly because mm-hmm. of this phase, which I find is the least interesting phase of the event, uh, although more <laughs> symptomatic of the rest of the problems of reality and therefore less of a good escape. Um, 
even if you're approaching it just as an escapist event. I was very surprised even at that event. And I'll, I'll just mention a couple of things uh, d- during the, the Paul Addis event. One of my surprises was the way in which the organization reacted. Um, I right. understood the way that they felt threatened by it. I understood the fact that they felt people were uh, not only were people, you know, they talked about people being in danger. I think more important was that, you know, the 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 hundreds of of he- human hours of work that went into it were were considered to be have been wasted or destroyed by this chaotic act, and that you know it was. In order to sort of respect the kind of brand or respect the work that people had done, they needed to basically do it again. So they rebuilt the man and burned on Mm -hmm. the normal period of time. What surprised me is that they had a golden opportunity to uh, invite the community into that process uh, Mm -hmm. to to have a, uh, you know, a gathering of the tribes to have this a crazy, huge anarchic meeting where people spoke their minds or where people were invited to help with the physical work of putting the man back together. Of, of We were there. We had to rebuild the man. Everybody there had to rebuild the man if that was what mm-hmm. the goal was. But they didn't. They, comple- they kept it completely within the organizational structure, the power hierarchy, blah, blah, blah. It was the same old crappy story. So that was very disappointing about the organization, which for me was like a bifurcation point. I am no longer really interested in this, in the politic, political potential mm-hmm. of this organization. It is just like another organization, whatever. I mean, it's fine. It's good. I'm glad it's there. I'm, I don't want it to stop, but it's just, it, it yeah. became less interesting for me. And then the other thing, and then I'll shut up, um, was, and much more surprising <laughs> and disturbing and sad, were the enormous number of the high, the high percentage of people in the many conversations that happened that week who were adamantly against Paul Addis. This blew my, excuse me, fucking mind. Because for me, as someone who went to the event in 1994 and so had three years of the OG chaos, that Monday night, whatever else you want to say about law and danger and, you know, liability and the police and all the stuff you want to say, whatever else you want to say, that guy brought the old chaos back and we felt it and the people i knew who were on my wavelength were all like yeah that was fucked up but man that what an amazing the most burning man act ever the highest poetic terrorism i've ever seen in my life but the vast majority of people that i spoke to were clearly and adamantly opposed to that action and that was the point where i went you know that prankster filter that I saw this through, the one that you articulate so well and that we're going to talk more about, it's mm-hmm. uh, not only minor, it's almost gone. It's so, almost gone, so, yeah. Anyway, that's that was my kind of reaction to that, and I appreciate you drawing attention to that. But let's go into more of what this prankster spirit was about. We've talked about cacophony society, but you went deeper and did more work than I've read about the importance of this guy, Gary Warren, Warner, who, uh, uh, wasn't it Warner, Warren, how do you pronounce it? Warren. Yeah. That yeah, who uh, started the suicide club, which is what, you know, inspired the cacophony society. So talk about this guy, cause he's really important figure and, and not very well known. Yeah. I was surprised. Um, I was surprised at the, 
at the significance uh, of this when I was doing doing the research. And, and a lot of material was we didn't have that um, book, the Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society, a beautiful um, book that's been published since that would have been. Um, I, I mean, in a way, maybe maybe it's a good thing because maybe it, uh, the, the research uh, path was a little different. But um, Gary Warren had a uh, bookstore called Circus of the Soul. In, the, in San Francisco in the late 70s and had started a practical jokes uh, class at the, uh, I think it was SF State University. Um, sorry, where you could you could kind of just create your own class. So I haven't looked at this exact thing. Uh, no, no, while, no, you're on it. Yeah, so, um, and created this uh, practical jokes class, but then got kicked out, you know, because it was a, it was prankstery and, and uh, just started having meetings at, um, at his, his bookstore. And at some point, these practical jokes, um, which I think it's, imp- it's important to understand that this, this kind of clowning circus of the soul kind of trickster ethos was just, you know, was a pervasive environment for him. Um, because at some point, there's a turn taken towards uh, something more initiatic, which is, which is confronting you know, doing something actually dangerous and confronting your fears uh, and, and potentially transcending from there. I mean, I don't know that they looked at it explicitly like that. The only person I've talked to from, from then was uh, Barlow, which was really wonderful to have him uh, verify a lot of the, a lot of the research, but um, the suicide club, let me, I'll read the, uh, this description, the charter member meeting of the SF suicide club meeting regularly, but at odd times, Members must agree to set their worldly affairs in order to enter the capital real world of chaos, cacophony, and dark Saturnalia. And they must further agree to live each day as if it were their last, for it may be capital. The club will explore the untraveled, exotic, miasmal, and exhilarating experiences of life. Deserted cemeteries, storms, caving, haunted houses, Nazi bars, fanatical movements, stunts, exposés, impersonation. The club will be ongoing for the rest of our lives. Um, and you know, just from that, you can see that, that that element that we talked about being officially gone by 2007 is right at the very front. Uh, but it's also something that you, you, kinda, you have to agree to, to enter into. Um, you know, you know this, we're not talking about uh, inviting somebody to – a party with without like it's like a disclaimer you, you know you, you're you're going to be a part of taking taking that risk and you, you kind of agree and i think that's that's important i mean um the what is the burning man ticket does say something on it about about risk but clearly they're not clearly they're more concerned with liability nowadays than, than they were um and and they did creative uh and dangerous things like climbing the golden gate bridge or the bay bridge at night, and I don't know if they were uh, I probably worse sober. I mean, that's pretty hard and dangerous. I haven't done it myself. Um, I've I have spoken to people who have. I won't mention the names, um, but uh, they they uh, would come up with these. They had rules for this as well um, because you you could you, you know you had to be you had to be safe and and you had to also like respect another person's fears. And I thought that was interesting. Um, that there were kind of rules against sadism because when you get into when you get into really trying to understand comedy and the trickster 
you see very clearly that there are these shadow tendencies towards nihilism um, and towards fatism. And it, it's very rare that you find a, find a balanced, um, <laughs> really balanced kind of trickster person. You know, oftentimes they're really self-destructive. Uh, I mean, self-deprecating is just like one layer, but but actually self-destructive, actually nihilistic. Some of the people I meet that I'm so fascinated by because they're clearly gifted potential like Hayoka shamans if they were in a different life and had a different context um, are horribly like self-destructive and, 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 and really can be sadistic. But anyway, we'll, maybe we'll get into that in a bit. But um, the, the Gary Warren Suicide Club had, had uh, begun to, this is the late 70s too, this is a San Francisco parallel to like the emergence of hip hop culture in, in uh, the Bronx and in Brooklyn, which I find interesting because this sort of um, reimagination of the urban landscape through, through creativity um, is, is, I think, an impulse that transcends like both, both cultures. And I think there's an important link there. Um, but after one, of the, after one of the Golden Gate climbs, uh, Gary Warren had an epiphany and uh, he got home and wrote a document that he called Carnival Cosmology. And it's for this reason, for this, it's because of this document that I began to see him as kind of like a godfather of, uh, of Burning Man. Um, and I was, I had been studying Gebser. A lot of people probably don't know who Gebser is, but it's uh, kind of like an evolutionary, um, almost like an evolutionary anthropologist in a way. And uh, I had been familiar with his way of thinking where, for example, he, he talks about the evolution of consciousness, and, and he gives an example of uh, the introduction of the notion of landscape into human consciousness and, and, and perception um, uh, with Petrarch's ascent of Mount Bento and how, for the first time, uh, uh, landscape is, is uh, visualized the way that we understand it now and the way that it was painted by the, by the Romantics. Well, I had, I had structures like that in, you know, in my mind, so when I... When I read Gary Warren's Carnival Cosmology, and I thought about my own, because 2007 was the year I did data collection, um, and that was that year of the weird, um, like ideological, like uh, ecological world's fair that I thought was more of an ideology than anything else. But um, when you're at the man uh, at the center, looking out on the Esplanade, if you kind of just phenomenologically, you see you see this chaotic, swirling uh, urban environment. Um, there's there's just a specific thing about it that I've never experienced anywhere else. Um, and let me let me just read you what what Gary Warren says from there. Okay, so uh, this is just an excerpt from his from his Carnival Cosmology. The world is a midway. Cities are its sideshows. The only difference between children and adults is that there is no one to take care of us. When we left home, it meant we were lost on the midway and. Unlike God, the carny boss will only let us ride as long as we pay. No one will come to find us. Some children will hurt us. Others will stop to play. Some are still deciding. But you can sneak in, too. Um, and it's just, it's just really intense because it's so perfect to me. Um, let me hold on. There's a little. Let me just continue on. Sorry to get between the... Uh, Ex, the exposition and just the, the source here. Uh, later, he says, now I find fear only a final non-evolving image that stills other possibilities. The creation of more intoxicating future images that prevents me from entering into a visionary dialogue with who I could become. 
And then he goes on, the world is becoming a total play environment, and I am becoming something else entirely. The future is no longer on a circuit like the news. Entertainment, something an entrepreneur plans as I expectantly read the notices and the bleached parchments on the corner stands. It is, imag- it is an imagination away. Um, and this is like 1978. And, you know, we think of first Burning Man in the Desert is 1990. Um, but when we understand that John Law was 18 when he joined the Suicide Club and, and, and uh, you know, basically must have been mentored by, by Gary Warren on some level. And then he took that impulse into the Cacophony Society, which was a much more open, uh, much less, you know, less initiatic in that sense of trying to like do something really dangerous and change, you know, do the the work on your kind of alchemical work on your on your individual body in order to be able to open your imagination past still uh, past like fear images that are still in your still in your imagination. Um, you, then you can see that even though um, Michael Michael and John Law might not have in any way consciously been like, yeah, Gary Warren's carnival cosmology is the shit. We're going to recreate that in the desert. Somehow uh, it, it seems to have unfolded such that there's a democratization of that, that kind of experience. I mean, that certainly describes my experience when I go out there and I'm, I'm in the middle and looking out in the city, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to chime in here. I mean, it, that was a revelation for me. You're, you're pointing out to that piece, which is also available, I think slightly edited on, online at the Burning Man website. Um, so anyone can go and, and check it out and it's, it's really worthwhile tracking this, uh, fascinating, uh, under, undersung man, uh, clearly, uh, I mean, brilliant. And we can talk about that partly, I think, I think particularly in relationship to one's own fears, it's something, there's something about combining the trickster prankster mm-hmm. energy, which as you said, tends towards nihilism, tends towards a certain kind of superficiality can tend towards sadism, towards hurting other people, towards power games with other people. I mean, the, the whole concept of the prankster is a very, you know, and morally ambivalent one uh, in mythology as well as in reality. But by turning those energies or including within that practice the confrontation with fear, which means directly the confrontation with death, i.e. like the fundamental terrifying image that structures our personality and behavior. Uh, Gary was able to articulate a way of, of using the trickster current, the prankster current, the, the mindfuck current, uh, in a way that is initiatory and and liberational. So, I mean, it's a remarkable connection, but I just wanted to chime in here that that I only wrote one a uh, big piece about Burning Man. I wrote some journalism as well, which I'm I'm proud of. Uh, the first piece was in 1995, so it was super early, and it was really fun to research and fun to write. Um, but I, my more substantial piece was about the cults of Burning Man, about the um, different sort of uh, sort of orientations that had a kind of spiritual or, or religious dimension mm-hmm. to them, even if they often looked like the opposite. Um, but within that process, I was trying to articulate aspects of of the experience of the place, and I, I kept falling back on the on the metaphor of the the cosmic carnival, uh, which to me is also a kind of fundamental psychedelic archetype. You you get to this place where it's all just a show and it's like we keep paying our money to go on the ride but the ride ends and we're stuck there and the, the carny 
is laughing and it's kind of celebratory and 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 somewhat demonic at the at the same time. Um, but it also, I think, is a, is a space of it tells us something about the imagination, like the sideshow uh, is, you know, it's very much about what do you imagine the bearded lady is going to be? What do you imagine this uh, horrible monster or this sort of sexualized mutant or monster? What's it going to be? You know, it's what's behind the curtain. And then right. the part of that process is some kind of sacrifice, money or something, your, 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 your dignity, whatever. And, and then you go in and you have your moment of revelation, but the moment of revelation is always mixed with disenchantment. And this, to mm-hmm. me, is part of the deeper spiritual logic of the trickster. is not just that it undermines the seriousness of the endeavor, whether it's spiritual or whatever, that it's laughing as opposed to acting sober, or that it's undermining hierarchy or undermining power. Those are all very significant events. But I think there's a deeper significance that we don't talk about as much, which is that the, 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 the trickster enchants by disenchanting by pulling the rug out from under the thing that you Mm -hmm. thought was actually special. And in that moment, that flash, that collapse, there's a deeper spiritual possibility or or ontological possibility or even political Mm -hmm. possibility in that gesture. And so there's something about the way, in my metaphor with with Burning Man, it's the way that like, oh, look at that thing in the distance. What is it? It's a it's a fairy castle. No, no, no. It's a it's a magical whale. No, no, no. It's it's a, it's it's Aladdin's cave and all these images and and associations as you as you step towards this marvelous flickering multicolored space that's oh, asking to open up like an incredible landscape just around the corner. And then as you walk closer, you realize it's some LEDs and some two by fours and a, you know, a plastic bag and there's a bunch of junk there and it's just kind of creaking in the wind mindlessly. And that moment is, that's the moment, you know, and it's not like, Oh, now we got to go find another distraction. I mean, that's, and that ends up what we end up doing most of the time anyway, because it's life, but that staging of the collapse I think is part of the deeper and in some ways more serious wisdom mm-hmm. of this archetype. Well, yeah, it's because it's, it's, I mean, if, if, if taken the right way, it's, it's, um, it's got an existential kind of grounding. Like you're talking about, I mean, somebody reacts and, and becomes disenchanted when they see the LEDs and then, and then moves on. Uh, that, that's one thing. But if you, if, if you then realize how powerful your your imagination is and how you're in many ways can participate and be the author um, of a co-creative reality with the world that you're interacting with, then, then that's, that's extremely empowering. And Burning Man, I think offers that opportunity. It's funny. You you brought that up because uh, the, the version of the MS I sent you is, I guess the one I had to turn in, but as anybody that's written anything uh, of any length knows things go through all kinds of, uh, iterations and I vaguely remembered that uh, a previous version because I don't know if I I don't know if I referenced you in that in that at all but in my in the one in the, the original one my chapter one there's a whole bit here about your beyond belief that's that's what you were referring to right um, yeah your article uh, and uh, you talk about the evasion yeah beyond belief the cult of 
Burning Man. You say Black Rock cliche has it. You can't say anything very penetrating about Burning Man because its diversity and contradictions undermine any generalization you might be tempted to make. Uh, the truism is solid enough and should be mulled over by any burner foolish enough like me to venture into the written analysis of the yearly festival. Yet behind this notion of impossible generalizations lurks a higher and more important injunction to keep the event free from the prison of interpretation, explanation, and the insidious net, net of meaning. Uh, the refusal is a prophylactic. By setting our bullshit detectors on high alert, burners ward off pretension, self-consciousness, and all the pre-packaged experience, etc. And I quoted that at length in this version uh, because it was a good segue into this idea that I was working with about Burning Man's uh, acting like a satire on on basically your life, your own personal narrative, um, and I follow it up, and I start getting into Comedy Central, like, and how how um, how The Daily Show would satirize Fox News and all this, and then and then I say that humor provides a gauntlet of contradictions and humility that can serve to create a space which new and complex phenomena can emerge without suffering the gravitational death of deficient categorization, and and this is a powerful thing. And you mentioned at the beginning that. People know that laughter is important and that humor is important. And yet when you look at, if you try to do a literature review on it, it's, you really can't find that much. I mean, uh, on one hand, taking humor seriously kind of like defeats the purpose. Some people will say, or like, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do that. Like it's taboo or something. Um, and then you, then you'll find there's a few things, uh, there's a few things that you can find, but, Basically, there's a resistance. It has like its own resistance uh, to to being studied in that way um, analytically. And yet, I think there's a lot that we can understand. Um, and for me, one of the most powerful uh, things uh, was the experience of um, coming into contact with uh, Hayoka at at the um, at a Sundance ceremony that I got invited to. Um, and there you, you, you see what, I mean, I, what I take to be um, kind of like an anthropologically uh, balanced um, f- function of this, of this trickster impulse, like embodied, like in, in an actual communal setting and a ritual setting and in a, in a daily setting, really. Um, it was strange. I was, um, I had, after I finished the uh, grad school, I went back, I had quit I had quit um, gambling, counting cards, and playing poker, which I grew up uh, exposed to that culture through my, my uncle, who's a professional poker player and card counter. And I had done it a little bit to make money and preserve my freedom outside of a system. Um, but when I started studying Rudolf Steiner, I, I thought maybe this is like not part of the not part of the path, you know. And uh, and then I ended up going to school and studying Steiner more deeply, and this, and then getting into this trickster idea. And then I realized, well it's part of my path, you know, I should try to understand it as much as possible. And I went back and I did it enough to uh, get a sense, get a sense of what it was like to embody that archetype in, um, in our context, in our very like capitalist leisure (laughs) entertainment culture context in Las Vegas, which is kind of the antithesis of Burning Man, because it looks the same on the outside, except that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And uh, Burning Man is all about like how do we take this home with us or whatever. But anyway, I was finishing up a trip and a friend of friend of ours that we used to we used to get free um, huge wonderful dinners and uh, I had a friend from Houston that was um, in doing um, involved in native in the Lakota culture 
um, in Las Vegas and doing sweat lodges. He gradually worked his way up to being asked to Sundance as a white guy. And so I was invited him to dinner and, uh, I was just finishing up a trip, and he was like, yeah, man, I'm going to go. I'm going to Sundance, like, in a reservation in the border of uh, New Mexico and Arizona. He said, you should just come with me, jump in the car and come with me. I didn't know anything about it, to be honest with you, but I'm interested in, in, in uh, culture. Um, and I had all these, you have to burn up your comps at the end. So I had, it was ridiculous because I had, like, $800 worth of chocolate from some, like, uh, some, like, uh, you know, European uh chocolatier that was in I was at, at some big uh, casino in, in Vegas and and I had a chocolate and then some maybe some really expensive wine I just threw it in the car and I went with him and I didn't realize that apparently he was running late and I didn't realize that I was going to be able to talk to him because he was sun dancing and I didn't know anybody else and it was about an hour and a half off of any highway it was out there I mean if you get you get hurt you're hurt like there's no you're kind of screwed and as soon as we, and we had no time to get food or anything so we set up a tent and then he was gone and he was gone for four, four days. And, um, I was just kind of stuck there. Uh, and he said, don't you, you'll figure it out. You'll, you'll just, you know, <laughs> somebody, somebody will help you out. So there's all these, like, you know, bone whistles and there's drums and everything. And the first person I run into, it turns out, I found out later was, was the Hayoka, the, or the sacred clown. And he's just like a normal guy, you know? And I ended up having several experiences uh, with him in particular that gave me uh, a real concrete image of what um, what somebody with this with this impulse could uh, look like uh, in a community uh, and, and in, a, in a benefic way, in my opinion, anyway. And and it's not and and so okay. Well, let me give you an example. So the first thing is we he just kind of. Uh, he could see that I didn't know anybody and have anything. And he took me to meet the uh, chief's grandmother and help her with the kitchen. But on the way there, there was a, there was very few white people there. I think there was another anthropologist and maybe this was his wife or something, but there was a white woman that came up and, and said, said she knew his name. And she's like, Oh, um, we're so, uh, so excited about the ceremony, getting really good energy out here uh, this year. And she was just happy and excited and his response, I wish I could remember it exactly. I know that at first he said, I don't like what you're saying. And then he said something that was completely unintelligible. It wasn't even really an allegory, but it, he said something like, you know, it was like the, the bear doesn't sit by the trash when the crow flies to the left. But it wasn't even that like allegorical. It was just like nonsense. And it was very negative in aspect. And it left her like with this and me and every, with this feeling of like, oh, that's terrible. It was so rude. And he just turned and walked off, you know, like, and I mean, looking back on it, my, my, my take is that, you know, her, her kind of like optimism and her like good vibe, like, uh, you know, sense was, was something that's actually kind of biased and out of balance, really. I mean, this is a sacred ceremony and it's not like a, Eden, maybe it's not the best thing to approach it with this. Yeah, everything's great. I'm getting like, she's at like a, like a festival in LA or something. Um, Anyway, then, then I, I saw. I, I won't. I know we don't have time for me to explain what a what a what a Sundance um, is. Uh, hopefully, some people will at least. Other people should at least understand that it's 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 a very it's a very sacred uh, tradition and it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful ceremony that does, that involves an arbor and um, sun dancers um, ma- making fasting and 
uh, dancing in the circle of the four, praying to the four directions, and uh, doing something called piercing. I won't want to get into that. I also kind of want to respect their uh, privacy with that. I'm not sure what the etiquette is there, but it's it's really powerful, and I was really lucky to be there. And uh, w- there are rules, right? The, there's the eastern gate to the arbor, and you know, we went and cut down all the men that were there that were capable, went and cut down a cedar tree that the chief had picked picked out, and then that we. We put that into the center of the arbor, like it's like a navel, and and the sun rises on the eastern gate, and you're not allowed to cross the eastern gate in that direction around the circle. And then you're, the dancers all go in one direction clockwise. But the Hayokas, there was two. There's one that I had a lot of contact with, but there was two. And at one point, they're out there like on the second or third day, and these these people have been fasting. They're not drinking water. It's It's solstice, by the way. I mean, this is like june in arizona new mexico and they're out there dancing and i look and i see these guys in robes black robes like almost like weird like uh like kkk kind of robes and they have fishing poles and they had hundred dollar bills tied to the end of the fishing poles and they can go whichever direction they want you know they can go uh they go counterclockwise and and that's interesting because it it, it reveals the game that is our unconscious kind of patterning of the the symbol world of the culture that we live in. And that's really important. That's, I think it's an important part of it. Um, and here they are, they got fishing poles with hundred dollar bills and they're, they're just like fishing in front of these, these dancers who are trying not to be distracted uh, by that. And, um, and that's an important thing as well. I think that the signal to noise ratio, I mean, some people, what I found is my, when I'm irreverent with people, um, you know, I think anybody, any, any really legitimate good artist or, philosophic, like honest uh, thinking person that's really on a path is they may not be trickster like themselves. They may not even like, like it. Um, but you'll notice that if, if you try to kind of throw them off a little bit and keep things balanced in conversation, they'll handle it. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll field the noise in a balanced manner, you know, it, because they're, they have a discipline of conversation and attention. They don't get distracted by it. Their ego doesn't get doesn't need to fix it. They can just roll with it. It's it's like improvising on a musical instrument. Like a conversation should be like that as well when it's on a higher level. It's like channeling, really. Um, and anyway, that is one, another example. And then and then I got to do sweat lodge with the Heyoka. That was really fucking fascinating because you know uh, in a sweat lodge uh, you're you're in there and you're <laughs> you're trying to. You know, pretend like you don't want to get out of the get out of the uh, building or whatever you call it, and and you go around and people say prayers. And there was um, there was this guy, this, this same guy. He's he just starts going off. Uh, oh man, he's like, it's hot in here. It's that's <clears throat> so hot in here, isn't it? Hot in here, you know. And like you, of course, it is hot in here. But you're like, what is this guy doing? Like, is he for real? You know, and I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of was on to him, but um, he just starts making a big deal, and he's interrupting the person who's leading the the, the circle. Um, he sings songs and he prayers, and and then he's like, "No, I can't take it." He's like, "Somebody's got to get me some water. Somebody get me some water." So somebody goes, gets him water, comes back, hands him the water, and he immediately throws the water on the on the stones, right? <laughs> Which. <laughs> which which obviously makes it hotter, brings steam and makes it hotter. And the the gesture of how he did that, how he went from being this jackass, like class clown, like totally full of shit, like uh, uh, 
throw, and then throwing the water onto the stone, he just he collapsed into this sacred, like uh, very focused attention, just looking at the stones. You know, in that moment, I'll never forget that that gesture of that collapse, because it was shocking that it was shocking that he would do that. That that things could be not what they're, you know, what he says what he says they are. And clearly, you know, he's bringing out this unconscious. Uh, thing, which is another another function, I think, is this: you, you you pull out these 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 unconscious thoughts and feelings that are they need a voice, um, you know, they need a voice and to be heard. And then, so the last thing um, is that we we went around in the circle and 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 people said their prayers and they're just I mean there was a, there was actually there was a white person in there uh, in there too, and and. The, and it's just, sometimes it's funny, you know, at these kind of things when people are like, I mean, there's reverence and then there's like, like, uh, almost like too much. reverence, <laughs> And people are trying their, their darnest to be like sacred, you know, cause they're not really used to it. And they're, they're in somebody else's house. And, um, and then it, and then it, it, then it gets to him and, and he's just like, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. You know, and he sings, he sings the rest of the chorus. And I, I, was, I was like, that's it. I got it. All right. Like, I, 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 <laughs> I know how it works now. Um, and, and honestly, since then, I, I started to look at, I started to look at comedy, like uh, comedians and, and, and how, like, where is that impulse? Because we have it. It's all over the place. Class clowns. And, and I find it at parties and festivals. I find people that are like, that have that. Uh, that gift and just are, are have not disciplined themselves or that want to or don't understand themselves that way or then they have this like nihilism and I try to communicate with them tell them what I know about what I what I've seen and 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 um and and then the thing is the entertainment industry because I also was exposed to the comedy scene in New York the Upright Citizens Brigade like 20 years ago um and uh they have a long form improv group improv technique it's really fascinating uh, how it works uh and the, the the thing is, most people in comedy get drawn to it, and then they end up in this really insular, like aesthetically unappealing kind of like bubble, which 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 sucks because I love funny theatrical people. Like I really just wish I was around them all the time. Um, but you know, then they, they they go to L.A. and then they're on. You know, you get like a part on this show and a part on the show, and it's just the entertainment industry is appropriating. Uh, these would be kind of like shamanically powerful individuals from just living a life that they would live in their community and with their families and with their friends and, uh, and, and, and perhaps finding that, that potential uh, in other ways. That, that, that said, there is, there is a function of it on the level of mass media of people like Ali G. I mean, uh, with Sasha Brown Cohen, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, and that's a hugely important thing. I don't, we don't have time to, yeah. No, no, we don't have time. In fact, we actually only have have about a minute left, so we don't have to really talk about because everybody has a concept about entertainment and comedy and blah, blah, blah. Really what you're drawing attention to is something I think we don't pay attention to, which is the function of comedy in our ordinary lives and the particularly, particularly funny people. And um, I, I think it's really important. It, the more spiritual you are, the more earnest you are about your path, the more you're, you want to get down to brass tacks, whether that's you know, being politically clear and, and authentic in your gestures and, you know, in your, your, your action in the world is important or what we do, you know, all of that kind of sense of serious, the more that you're like that, the more you got to make sure you're around people like this. If you're not one of those people, you know, you still cultivate your own humor, 
uh, gets you through dark times better than about anything. I was just, I had a hellish day of traveling yesterday and I'm actually maintained an amused attitude through almost the entire thing <laughs> for through, I don't know, doing this kind of work. But more importantly is be aware of having people like that in your life and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, supporting them. We just have time for one little comment from you, just like half, half, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly it. I, like I, I, uh, I found a community here in Santa Fe. I mean, I still travel a lot, but um, I've been back and forth between Brooklyn or in New York and, and Santa Fe. But I, I got to kind of experiment with with that myself, uh, and it only worked when I found a home where where people uh, take it the right way. You know, we'll go out. We have a TP up in the woods in Amos for us, and go out there, and we'll take trips. And and I and I just um, get to kind of get into that role. And and it helps balance everything. Uh, but I, the thing is, you need the other. You got to accept it. Like a you know, a comedian likes being called out and kind of embarrassed in a way. But a lot of people it makes them really uncomfortable, uh, and they project things onto you. So I think it's important, exactly like you said, kind of keep that in in your life. Find it and and keep it close. It's really healthy. Well, I just want to say thanks so much, Mitch, for uh, AKA Raven for joining us on Expanding Mind. It was a really illuminating talk. Thank you. All right. Until next week, folks, keep your minds open. 